So there's a true north that's already set for me by God's word so that we know where we're going. Welcome to Christ and Culture, the podcast of the L. Russ Bush Center for Faith and Culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Here we'll explore how the Christian faith intersects all avenues of today's culture through conversations with leading thinkers. Welcome to the conversation. Welcome to another episode of Christ and Culture. I'm Dr. Ken Keithley. I'm Dr. Benjamin Quinn, and today in our Christ and Culture conversation, Drs. Keith Whitfield and Sam Williams will join us for a roundtable discussion about an important doctrine, something that's especially important to us here at Southeastern and to evangelicals and Southern Baptists broadly. After that, Doug Ponder will talk to us about Thanksgiving. But first, let's begin with our segment, In the News. Dr. Keithley, Thanksgiving is coming up next week, in fact. Hard to believe we're already there. But sometimes the holidays get overlooked in the hustle and bustle leading up to Christmas. What are some ways that we can pause and just express our gratitude leading up to this season of Thanksgiving? Yes, to promote Thanksgiving, I feel like I've been asked to promote apple pie and love your mother. (laughs) What kind of Grinch or Scrooge or cantankerous person would not be in favor of Thanksgiving? Uh, It is the one holiday that enjoys the broadest amount of support across the spectrum of our culture and our society. That being said, I think that there are ways in which we can practice Thanksgiving, and often these are through our local churches. I know at the church where I'm at doing the interim, right now we're presently doing a coat drive in which we are asking for families who have gently used coats, sweaters, and jackets to give those because uh, we have a ministry in the area that is able then to disperse those and make Mm. sure they get out. Uh, Similarly, my wife works at the share shop, and many of the faculty wives and many of the students work at the share shop here on campus, and it is a magnificent ministry in which which people are able to share, as the name says, uh, with uh, students who are in need and and their families. As one who has benefited greatly over the years, I have to heartily amen the share shop. It is a remarkable ministry, and it's not just during the Thanksgiving week, but uh, it's year-round, right. and, the, and the, the level of service that goes without being trumpeted yeah. and without being announced, uh, it is a remarkable thing, and I, and, and I, I am uh, so grateful for the level of support that we have for the share shop. During the Thanksgiving season, there's typically opportunities for us to be able to give food or share meals uh, through ministries of the local church. And that, again, is true. I just want to commend Kenley Missionary Baptist Church that they are involved with other churches to make sure that everyone is Mm. fed, that everyone has a a great meal during the Mm. Thanksgiving holiday. There's one other way that we can really... Uh, practice Thanksgiving. It's a little more challenging, but I think it's maybe the most beneficial. And that is making sure that the people in our community have an opportunity to take part in Thanksgiving. You and I are here at a seminary. Uh, A lot of our listeners are around in a community of, of a university or a college. And this is that time of year in which particularly international students, um, they find themselves left in the dorm while all of the students go to be with their families. Mm -hmm. I need to make sure, does 
everyone have somewhere to be yeah. uh, during Thanksgiving. Not only that, this is true in uh, rest homes and nursing homes mm-hmm. yeah. that and the elderly, that there are so many because their family, their families who love them are a long way off. Yeah. And so there's no one going to be with them. And so I think if you were to, uh, if, if one wants to be a bit proactive, you can find out that there is someone you can invite to sit at your table at Thanksgiving. And that is one of the greatest blessings Mm. that I think that a family can enjoy is opening their home to someone who otherwise would not have a Thanksgiving meal to share. So true, Dr. Keithley. You know, this had never crossed my mind until I was in college. And I remember one student in particular, he was an international student from China, never crossed my mind through Thanksgiving and Christmas season that he had nowhere to go. It never crossed my mind. And it was only after the fact that I saw in our school newspaper, there was a a segment that ran in that newspaper with his picture, which basically said, I had nowhere to go. Mm. And I was so ashamed of myself. I'd never crossed my mind to invite him. And so ever since then, I've tried to do exactly what you said in our church, even in my classrooms now. If you don't have somewhere to go for the holidays, you're welcome to our home. And it's interesting, you know, for some people, they're really hesitant to do that because they love that sort of family-only, warm and fuzzy, controlled environment. And I want to challenge our listeners, especially those who who claim to be followers of Christ. As you said, opening your door, uh, you might find one of the greatest blessings that you've been missing out on because you haven't invited those, whether they're uh, they're widows or widowers or whether they're students in your church and you're not thinking about them or internationals or in the nursing homes, whatever the case is, open your door at Thanksgiving. I think you'll find out that not only did you not lose anything by doing so, yeah. that you gain a blessing yeah. you had no idea that was available. Amen. Here on Christ and Culture, we usually begin with an aspect of culture, whether that's cannabis, COVID vaccines, employment rates, all the rest of it. And then we work backwards to see how the Bible addresses these topics. But sometimes it's helpful to switch that around for us to begin with the Bible or specifically a doctrine of the Bible and then to tease it out throughout our culture. And so for our upcoming episodes, once a month, we're going to highlight some of these biblical doctrines that are important or at least contested in our culture. Uh, We're going to have roundtable discussions with professors who are here at Southeastern in order to help you understand these doctrines and then apply them to your lives. So today, we'll begin this series with the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture. And to help us make sense of it all, we're glad to have with us Dr. Keith Whitfield and Dr. Sam Williams. Dr. Whitfield is Provost, Associate Professor of Theology, and Dean of Graduate Studies here at Southeastern. Dr. Williams is Professor of Counseling and the Folk Chair of Biblical Counseling here at Southeastern. Doctors Whitfield and Williams, thank you for being with us today. It's good to be here. Good to be here. Thanks for inviting us. Okay, well, let me start with a couple of quotes, and then we're going to try to define some terms. John Peckham, in his book on theological method, says, Though sola scriptura is straightforward to describe, it is difficult to practice. And then a second quote that I think will help frame our conversation, and no pun intended, uh, it's from John Frame, someone that we, I think everyone at this table uh, appreciates and respects. John Frame says, Scripture contains divine words sufficient for all of life. It has all the divine words that the plumber needs. 
and all the divine words that the theologian needs. So it is just as sufficient for plumbing as it is for theology. And in that sense, it is sufficient for science and ethics as well. So let's begin by defining some terms. What do we mean by inerrancy? Then we're going to talk about what do we mean by sola scriptura? And then we're going to talk about what do we mean by sufficiency? So let's start with inerrancy. What do we mean when we say scripture is inerrant? The word inerrancy is there's no error. It's exactly what the word means. And, and what the affirmation of inerrancy is this, that the Bible is true. And everything the Bible says and teaches, it's, it's true. Um, and we affirm the doctrine of inerrancy because of the ultimate author of the scriptures, the one who inspires it, who's God himself, who doesn't lie, and he himself is holy and true. And so what he says is true. So truth without any mixture of error. Thy word is truth. Right. Dr. Quinn, there do seem to be places in the Bible where there is either hyperbole or the rounding of numbers or approximations or there is uh, the uh, quoting of someone not telling the truth. How does that fit into inerrancy? Yeah, I think it begins with uh, approaching the scriptures in light of what did the author intend when he wrote this portion of scripture. And so as well as that there's a, a million different examples. If we were to take just the Gospels um, to start there, what we have are four perspectives of the story in the life of Jesus. That doesn't mean that they're competing perspectives. They're all pointing us to Jesus, the Son. But there are places where at times it describes things slightly differently that we wouldn't see to be in any way contradictory whatsoever. It's as It's sort of popularly talked about as if you have five people that observe a car accident and you go interview all of them, there's going to be a little bit of different perspectives on each, but they're all telling different angles of the same story. Uh, so one, one part of that that I want to kick back to Dr. Whitfield and Williams are things like, does the Bible teach that the earth is the center of the universe? And these kinds of questions that pop up, especially in the Middle Ages, that challenged the way that the church had historically interpreted the Bible. But actually, when it came full circle, no pun intended, but when it came full circle, it made us better readers of our Bible with respect to sort of faith and science. And it presses on the way that we think about inerrancy. Dr. Whitfield, when, when those questions come up in the church, how, how do we take those kinds of examples to be better readers of our Bible and better committed as inerrantists? Well, one of the things I said earlier when we were talking about defining inerrancy is that it's true in all that it teaches. And I think that's just an important sort of qualification. So then that means that we have to be good readers. We have to ask the question, what is the Bible teaching? Uh, and they may be using different literary sort of conventions or literary devices to teach what it's seeking to teach, but those literary devices or literary conventions uh, may be metaphorical, um, the, you know, they may be analogical, they may be sort of uh, seeking to sort of shock the system, if you will, to wake you up to what's being said, but it's not exactly what's being taught. And so that's what we need to, to focus on. And I think your point is exactly right. It does force us to be keener readers of Scripture. Yeah. So sola scriptura, tell us what is the origin uh, of that concept? You know, in other words, where, when, when and where uh, in the history of the church does that uh, language become important? I don't know why you guys are pointing to me, the only non-theologian sitting in this room, <laughs> but as I recollect, it has something to do with the Reformation and with Martin Luther and with the solas. And uh, But I think the the concern I have had sometimes uh, is that um, sometimes sola scriptura gets translated to mean that we find truth only in the Bible. And and I don't 
you guys know better than that. That's not really what it's saying. It's asserting that we only have one Bible. We only have one collection of divinely revealed literature given to us from God. And uh, that's that's it. That's all we have. Um, but I'm concerned that, that sometimes, and I've noticed this in my field of counseling, uh, you just mentioned the problem uh, that could come up if you were going to the Bible to learn the astronomy of this particular solar system. Uh, you would be wrong. Yeah. And the Bible would have taught you wrongly, not because the Bible's wrong, but because that's not what it's up to teaching. It's not teaching astronomy. In other so, words, even so, there's a distinction perhaps in our common parlance between sola scriptura and solo scriptura, as though right. that's the only that's the right. only authority whatsoever for right. all of life and doctrine. Or nuda scripture, yeah. scripture, yeah. the idea that all we need is the Bible, and yet I don't know anywhere in the Bible that it says two plus two equals four, and yet I'm convinced that that is truth. Uh, and all truth is God's truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this then leads us to the notion of the sufficiency of Scripture. I think that sufficiency of Scripture is one of the most powerful doctrines uh, that we have, but it's powerful because it's so very modest. In other words, we're not trying to claim that it's sufficient for the neurosurgeon to do uh, perform surgery. What do we mean when we say Scripture is sufficient? Yeah, what I mean when I say Scripture is sufficient, really two things. Number one, it's sufficient for us to read it and interpret it. It's sufficient for it to interpret itself. Um, so we might talk about that in terms of formal sufficiency. Um, and then materially is sufficient in that what it teaches, it teaches rightly, and it's sufficient for us to know God and what it means to live our lives before him in a way that's faithful to what he wants his people to do and be um, is sufficient for that purpose. So it's sufficient uh, to teach us what it's seeking to teach us and to do that rightly. And it's also um, what we might call formal sufficiency, and that is um, we can interpret the Bible with the Bible. So what I hear you saying is that the Bible is sufficient, but properly interpreting it is hard work, and it's going to take careful effort. I heard someone uh, make a statement recently at a conference uh, that I want to quote. It was a conference about climate change and how Christians should think about this. And the person said, there's a fairly straight line from the Bible to ethics, but the line is not as clear from ethics to public policy. So yes, we believe that the Bible can tell us how we should live, but it may not tell us exactly how we should vote on a particular immigration bill or a particular uh, climate change bill or a particular tax bill. So how do, since we're so, since we are confident that the Bible is sufficient to guide us, what do we mean when we talk about having that kind of conversation in which good Christians disagree? Kind of goes back to your quote from John Frame earlier. Uh, the Bible is sufficient for the theologian and for the plumber, but the Bible is sufficient for the theologian and the plumber in different ways. Um, for the theologian, the theologian is seeking to um, communicate what does it mean to know God, and the scriptures are for that purpose, to teach us what it means to know God and how to live before him. That's the theologian's task. So his domain is to study the scriptures, and it's sufficient for that part, that 
the plumbers seeking to plumb houses and to fix plumbing problems in houses in other um, other places as well, you know, in commercial places, uh, you know, uh, buildings and such. But the plumber does it with a certain ethic. Right. Does it with a certain view of the, what the world is about. And so the Bible informs the way that they, they do that. And perhaps even the plumber understands the role of business and community and does so from the scriptures. And uh, what does it mean to, to live in such a way where people flourish and you're loving your neighbor and all the rest? And so the, the Bible is sufficient for that as well, but, but sufficient in different ways. So I think I hear you saying, therefore, we all start from a biblical viewpoint. We start with Scripture. Uh, and then whatever vocation and area that we're in, we do so to the glory of God. And we end with Scripture in that it is in judgment of our thoughts and our actions. And so, uh, but that does not mean, and going to Dr. Williams, that there are not engagement with other fields of knowledge. Sure. So <clears throat> as a biblical counselor, and you are addressing some case, some situation in which you see that there are significant spiritual issues at hand, but there also may be some physical issues or mental issues. How do you, how do you, how do you work your way through that? Mm-hmm. As someone who's operating from the sufficiency mm-hmm. of Scripture, yeah, well, I think I think there are multiple ways that God's word can be helpful to us. There, kind of like you all are saying, it gives us. Um, we begin and end with Scripture, the primacy and finality of Scripture. That Scripture serves a, a normative role in helping us understand uh, life and what it's about and what we're here for. The big questions are answered for us in the Bible. Uh, but all questions aren't answered in the Bible. Uh, but before I get to that, I, I think the other part of uh, where God's Word is really helpful for us in answering questions about uh, public policy or mental health is that as we engage with Scripture, as God's Word is applied to our hearts and minds by the Holy Spirit, uh, in view of Jesus and in the community of believers that we live in, I I hope it teaches us how to think and how to achieve wisdom as our hearts and minds are formed by Scripture. So I think there's a really important component of what the Bible does because it's God's Word and because it points us to Jesus and because it's mediated to us by the Spirit, that it is intended to affect our faculties and how well we think about John's depression or whether or not we should vote this way or that way regarding immigration or climate. Um, so I, I think that's another function that it plays is forming us, that spiritual formation function. And that's not primarily cognitive. It's a matter of forming our loves and our values and our, our, our sensibilities. So scripture operates as you know our beginning point, faith-seeking understanding. Uh, then there we go about the hard work, as I said, of properly applying these scriptural principles to whatever the setting is at hand. Mm-hmm. What I hear you saying is that operating from this perspective, under the power of the Holy Spirit and guided by His Word, this should affect our thinkings in profound ways. Yes, but yes, not just yes. as individuals. This is something that mm-hmm. needs to be done in community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, what is the role of community and sufficiency of Scripture? Because, in many ways, uh, as the doctrine of sola scriptura developed, 
it was a debate about the traditions. Uh, Dr. Quinn mentioned some of the medieval teachings. How does one go about adjudicating be- between what uh, the traditions of the church may be versus the teaching of Scripture? It really is a question about authority, saying that the community is involved in interpreting Scripture and knowing God and what does it mean to to live a life that's in conformity to his will and training other people. That doesn't mean that the community is sort of decentering the authority of Scripture. It just means that the community is involved in understanding what God is teaching in the Scriptures. And it actually goes right back to the sort of the, back to that language I was using earlier, the formal principle of sufficiency. The Bible is sufficient to interpret itself. And God has given his people his word, and he's called us to know it, and he's called us to know it in community. So that means that the the men around the mics here, you have insight and perspective on Scripture, and we talk about it, and I learn from you. Uh, That doesn't mean that the Scriptures are insufficient. It means that the Scriptures, in fact, were sufficient. They were sufficient to teach you something about God and about the Word, and you were able to teach me that. So that doesn't decenter the authority of Scripture. It just means that uh, God has given us one another to teach one another to, uh, who he is and what he's taught in his word. But the issue was, as you know, in the, in the Reformation, is that a community of faith owned the interpretation of Scripture. What effectively was happening is that interpretation decentered the authority of Scripture, and the interpretation of Scripture itself and the tradition became that which was authoritative. Yeah, I think that's so important. So we have on one side, we operate within community, but we don't allow the community to become the final authority. We as individuals are affected by Scripture, but we don't allow the individual to become the autonomous interpreter. So we have those two things that must be held in balance always under the judgment of Scripture, if I hear you correctly. You know, talking about the individual, I hear every once in a while someone say, well, you know, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And I think, okay, I'm worried what you might mean is God said it, I interpret it, and that's the end of it. You know, no, wait a minute, we have to be in community. I have to allow myself to to have the community using the word to pass judgment upon my thoughts and my actions. And the the very role of the community actually accentuates, rightly understood, accentuates the sufficiency of Scripture and not the sufficiency of our own interpretation, the point you were just making. And I do think that's a real temptation. So let's let's make it more practical as we we begin to wind it down. Uh, Let's put three faces on the conversation. Keep in mind the two doctrines that we're talking about are the inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture. So, Dr. Williams, on a practical level, so you, you not only do counseling, but you train counselors. And if one of your students or one of your trainees were to say, Dr. Williams, tell me how this matters when I go in today to counsel so-and-so for their anxiety disorder. Let's, put a, let's, let's just make that practical. How does inerrancy and sufficiency inform that practice today? I think that it informs me as a counselor and me as a teacher of counselors in that I have established in Scripture and in who it reveals in Jesus a true north. I have a clear sense of, of where that person, where, where, where God in his divine wisdom believes that person should go. So there's a true north that's already set for me by God's word so that we know where we're going. Um, and uh, this is, you know, not the case in a, a secular therapy. 
uh, true north is up to you or up to some other perhaps religious tradition or philosophy of life. Um, so, you know, it, it, it kind of gives me that sense of direction that if I have counseled this person well, if my students have counseled them well, they will at the end of their counseling somehow not just be less anxious, but even more important, be better lovers and followers of God and lovers of other people. Yeah. So it really makes a big difference there uh, teleologically and where we're headed. Dr. Whitfield, the same kind of uh, idea. We've talked about the plumber a fair bit. Let's switch it to the baseball coach. Um, the faithful, thoughtful, dedicated Christian who's also a baseball coach, inerrancy and sufficiency of Scripture, how does that affect day-to-day life for him or her? Scripture's for God's people to know him, to live a life that's faithful to him, and to be the witness that he's called them to be. And Scripture informs the way we live. And so it doesn't really matter what you're doing, whether you're coaching baseball or anything else. So when the baseball coach has the responsibility to shepherd a team, a team of image bearers, not primarily trying to figure out how to get the team to win a baseball game, but to make sure that those people become all that God has created them to be. That's, so the Christian baseball coach, I think that's their starting place. Where do they get that starting place? They don't get it from a coaching manual. They get it from the scriptures. And then, the, you know, when you play a game, you want to play with, with fairness. You know, you want to play according to the rules. Where do you get that ethic? You don't get, I mean, you get it from the rule book, but ultimately our indebtedness to that ethic is not from the rule book. It's from the fact that we believe God exists in the world and, uh, you know, they, these types of things. So I think we could play that in a thousand different ways, but the scriptures are shaping the person's worldview as they're doing whatever it is that they're doing. And the baseball coach is a great, a great sort of analogy. It's a great illustration in that you have people that you're engaging with and you're seeking to see them developed. Um, and hopefully your telos, what Dr. Williams was just talking about, your telos is, is bigger than them becoming the best baseball players than they can be. Their telos is also for them to become the human beings yeah. God's created them to be. So clearly uh, the Houston Astros could have used your help in terms of, of developing the proper ethic for playing baseball. Evidently. Evidently. It's so helpful. I, I'm most appreciated in both of your answers, that sort of that end goal or teleological uh, kind of direction and shape about it. Because at the end of the day, the scriptures are the field in which is buried the pearl of great price, who is Christ himself, Jesus himself. And he is uh, really our starting point, our end point, and our way in between. He refers to himself as the way and the truth and the life. And that that gives us, I think, both a proper starting point, a direction, an end goal. And it also informs the way, whether it's plumber, contractor, baseball coach, uh, even the Houston Astros. I'm not sure they should fit in this conversation. But in any case, it informs all of that conversation. That's the nature of Scripture's sufficiency. So proper application of these doctrines may be a challenge, but they— should be done in community with confidence in Christ's lordship, his word, the working of his Holy Spirit, and his providential control in our lives. Mm-hmm. Thank you, doctors Whitfield and Williams, for being with us today. Thanks for letting us be a part of the conversation. Hey, friends, as always, we want to thank you for listening to this podcast. And while we've got you here, we want to let you know about an important opportunity that's coming up soon. November 30th is Giving Tuesday, and we want to invite you to support Southeastern in its mission to equip students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. 
This year, we've set a goal of reaching 500 gifts by the end of the day on Giving Tuesday. And every dollar that you give plays a critical role in helping prepare our students for gospel ministry around the world. And get this, every gift on Giving Tuesday will be matched dollar for dollar, meaning that every dollar that you give will have double the impact. So mark your calendars for Giving Tuesday on November 30th and be a part of what God is doing in and through Southeastern to fulfill the mission. As we mentioned earlier in the podcast, Thanksgiving often gets overlooked. But in today's guest segment, Doug Ponder urges us to make Thanksgiving great again. Concerning sacramental turkey meals and the over-realized eschatology of early Christmas decorations, you can call me old school, a traditionalist, or even pedantic. Just don't call me Scrooge when I joyfully decline to decorate for Christmas until after Thanksgiving has passed. It's not that I have anything against Christmas. It's just that I have a deep love for Thanksgiving that compels me never to mix it with Christmas trappings. I say that as a concession, not a command. You can have your Christmas lights and eat your turkey too. Yet whatever your custom, if your appreciation for Thanksgiving has waned in recent years, I invite you to rediscover the uniqueness of the holiday, to see its fitting connection to the Christian life, and to make Thanksgiving great again. This is because Thanksgiving is a uniquely Christian holiday. As G.K. Chesterton once said, pagans could make an alternative to Christmas, but they could not make a substitute for Thanksgiving Day. For half of them are pessimists who say they have nothing to be thankful for, and the other half are atheists who have nobody to thank. In other words, the leech-like nature of secularized sentimentality can easily attach itself to the holiday of Christmas, celebrating the form without the substance. This is not so with true thanksgiving, for there is an essentially Christian quality to gratitude. Implicit in the logic of thanksgiving is the notion of a creator to whom we are grateful. Honest agnostics have acknowledged as much. Consider, for example, the reflections of noted philosopher Karl Popper, who said, When I look at what I call the gift of life, I feel a gratitude which is in tune with some religious ideas of God. I don't know whether God exists or not, but I would be glad if God were to exist, to be able to concentrate my feeling of gratitude on some sort of person to whom one would be grateful. Simply put, nobody is ever only thankful for something. They must also be thankful to someone. Thus, it won't suffice to stop at giving thanks to the people in your life, since they are not the product of their own making. And if you trace this line of gratitude back far enough, you will bump into the God from whose fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Thanksgiving is a Christian act. In addition to recognizing the one who deserves our gratitude, Thanksgiving also provides us with edible pictures of the heart and mission of God. Consider the food. Thanksgiving is a picture of God's grace. Most holidays involve food, of course. What's July 4th without a cookout? Or Christmas without cookies? With Thanksgiving, however, the food is the centerpiece. This has led many to mock Thanksgiving as some kind of day of gluttony, accompanied by worn-out jokes about overeating or the need to nap or exercise. Yet for those with eyes to see and tongues to taste, 
The overabundance of food is a picture of the superabundant grace of a God who gives immeasurably more than all we ask or think. Practically speaking, this means it's almost impossible for your Thanksgiving spread to have too much meat, too much dessert, too much coffee, or too much of that sweet potato casserole with the buttery brown sugar pecans on top. For Christ didn't meet our deep need for him with a teaspoon of grace. So why should we celebrate that grace with a moderate slice of pie? It's almost sacrilegious. Now consider the table. Thanksgiving is a picture of Christ's victory. The psalmist speaks of a Thanksgiving table spread in the presence of my enemies, Psalm 23.5. This verse describes the glory of a victory feast in a world still filled with sorrow. It refers to the hopeful enunciation that Christ has won the victory over sin and death, a victory we can enjoy even in the shadow of these ever-present threats. In view of this, what better way is there to declare the power of God, especially in these turbulent and troubled times, than to believe God's promises so deeply that we feast together? This is what Thanksgiving does par excellence. It declares that we believe the darkness of the world cannot overcome God's marvelous light, and it shows the world that we are not fearful of scarcity when standing on the rock of God's provision. In this way, Thanksgiving transforms every forkful of food into an act of faith that says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And here's the stuffing to prove it. Finally, consider the feast. Thanksgiving is a picture of our salvation. When the prophet Isaiah foretold the salvation of God's people, he described a banquet of well-marbled beef and well-aged wine. Isaiah 25, 6. I dare say that were we called upon to describe salvation, most of us would choose something far more ethereal and far more boring, like harps and clouds and choir robes. Yet Isaiah knew that the final moment of our salvation is an eternal wedding party, as Revelation 19 depicts. It's not an accident, then, that Christ's first miracle occurred at a wedding reception and consisted in turning six large vats of water into a top-notch vintage. The hope of the redeemed is nothing less than the wedding supper of the Lamb, where we will dine and drink and dance forever in the company of the one who is the bread of life, the living water, and the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Thanksgiving pictures this final hope, inviting us to feast in the present as people who know that our pasts are forgiven and our futures are secure in Christ. Thanksgiving is in foretaste of even better things to come, calling us to look forward to the day when God himself will dwell with us and he will be our God. He will replace sorrow with joy. He will swallow up death with life. And the darkness of our former state, wherein we did not honor God or give thanks to him, will be overcome by the glory of his light as we step out into the eternal day of thanksgiving. I love that tagline. Make Thanksgiving great again. As a reminder, Doug Ponder is the teaching pastor at Remnant Church in Richmond, Virginia. He also serves as dean of faculty and professor of biblical studies at Grimke Seminary. Thank you, Doug, for that word. It was very encouraging. And thank you all for listening today. If you enjoy the podcast, give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and share the episode with a friend. Thank you for listening. We look forward to seeing you next time.